Hi again, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again. Great to have you with us today. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, today's episode is going to be a real treat for all of you uh, macroeconomic junkies. And I know we got quite a few of you lurking out there because you keep sending emails and posting comments whenever we do our annual summary or talk about trends and projections and statistics and all that good stuff. So today, based in Bangkok, Thailand, we've got Mr. Daniel Gallucci. Now, he's a researcher, uh, writer, and editor, and he'll most recently with the Financial Times, with their confidential uh, research unit, but he's got his hands in quite a few pies. Now, Daniel's originally from the U.S., but he's a long-term Asia resident who's lived mainly in Thailand since 2006, and he's also had a stint in Japan a few years back. Now, he actually specializes in Thailand and the greater Southeast Asia region, but he's also a keen Japan watcher. Now, I've known Dan for a few years now, and it's always fascinating for me to hear his observations and his analysis of the macroeconomic issues um, facing the region, so both Japan and Thailand, um, both of which are two countries dear to my heart, but also the region as a whole. So I thought it'd be great to have him here on the show, um, maybe, who knows, even as a regular or semi-regular guest, just so that you could all benefit from uh, his knowledge and experience as much as I do. So here he is, Dan Gallucci. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, how are you feeling, by the way? Are you staying out of the uh, viral path, I hope? Yeah, so far I am. Although uh, the travel restrictions have been quite a headache. Yeah. Well, and also, well, and thanks for having me on. Awesome. So before we get right into the um, nitty-gritty and talk shop and that, maybe you can give us, um, the listeners, and me actually, because I've never heard your origin story either, um, maybe just a bit of your history. So I know you've been in corporate finance and investment banking and so forth for over a decade now, but I don't really know much about you prior to that or how you ended up in Asia um, or in finance. So maybe give us a quick rundown of what brought you to where you are now. The sure thing. The origin story makes me feel like a comic book superhero. That's now, so it. <laughs> yeah, so I finished, um, I'm from the U.S., I should back up and start with. I grew up uh, in Vermont in the Northeast, for anyone who uh, doesn't know it. Um, also went to undergraduate university in the U.S. and coming out of there with a history degree as many history majors are want to do. I was unemployed near graduation and figuring out what to do with my life. And uh, as, uh, as as things would unfold, I ended up taking a teaching position in Thailand. I think it's, it's the way that a lot of people first end up overseas. Um, that was that was my story in 2006, um, why I came to Thailand. Um, it was sort of a, a why not at that point, you know, more, more than mm-hmm. a, a why specifically. Um, little did I know that all these years later, I would basically still uh, still be there. So I first spent three years in Thailand um, teaching, as I mentioned, uh, and also studying Thai. Um, I became fairly fluent, um, I'm, I'm happy to say, which is not the case yet with Japanese, unfortunately. Um, and after that, I, I then went back to the U.S. for a master's degree in order to shift my career towards something that was with a, a more sustainable long-term career path. Um, I, I ended up gravitating towards business and finance. Um, I did an international business degree and focused on finance. But coming out of this was just after the um, the great crisis. Um, 2000. So I, was, I entered in 2009 and finishing up in 2011. This was a pretty terrible time to be looking for a job in that field or really any field as mm-hmm. a career 
change her. Um, meanwhile, I also missed Thailand. So I got to Thailand. I, I took a job with a Thai investment bank doing mergers and acquisitions for a year. Um, I pretty quickly realized that that wasn't for me as much as I was happy to be back in Thailand. And I did learn a lot, but it was sort of preparing me for a career as a Thai banker rather than sort of in finance. More right. Uh, it wasn't going to be for me long term. All good people, and I, I learned a lot from that. And I ended up in the, the role that I've just very recently left uh, with the Financial Times, which was sort of a combination of business journalism and desk analysis. Some of the work that I did was much more like a, that of a typical uh, journalistic piece on the ground, kind of going to look at things, while a lot of the other work was was more um, more similar to kind of bank or research light stuff, for example, on Thailand's household debt levels. Then in the middle, I had a year in Japan and uh, kind of wrapping things up, uh, short story long, that catches you up on the, the great origin story of Dan Galucci. Right. So... So Thailand and Japan, I mean, they're both, um, I guess, Asian countries. And for someone maybe not familiar with the region, they might sound like, you know, yet another Asian country. So they might sound like they're similar, but they're not, are they? I mean, probably even stark opposites on many levels. Yes, indeed. Um, they, they are very much opposites in many ways. I mean, Japan is famous for being one of the most organized, cleanest, safest well-run places in the world, um, which can also make it, to some people, although not to me, perhaps one of the more boring in certain respects, whereas Thailand is wild, it's unpredictable. Um, right down to the, the difference in the food, I think, kind of sums things, sums things up. You know, Thailand, everything is in your face. Spicy, explosive taste. Japan, on the other hand, subtle and more refined and a lot more, uh, more layers to it, I would say. Mm. And that, um, any preference? Like, I mean, I guess it's like asking you who you love more, mommy or daddy. But anyway, do, do you have a preference? Like, can you say you prefer being here or there? I, I can at this late point. I mean, I've, I've spent something like 11 years out of the last, how many now? I'm losing track. Out of the last 14 in Thailand. And with anything or anyone that you know so well, I think it can become kind of a love-hate scenario. Um, Thailand will always be a second home to me, and in many ways a first home. It's where I spend almost all of my post-university adult life, but it's uh, I've, I've become a bit tired of the place, and I think now that I'm a bit older and looking more towards the long term, I'm much better suited for Japan. Um, the culture, I think, has more layers to it and, and has more, more to offer overall. And the day-to-day -day life for an expat, I think, in most cases, and this will vary, um, especially if you happen to be married to a Thai, you would have an easier time with certain things. But I think for most people, the day-to-day -day life is a lot more predictable and manageable in the long term. Stuff like, you know, boring stuff that you don't think about when you're a backpacker in your 20s, but stuff like mortgages, uh, long-term visas, all of, all of this is very well run and, and I think approachable for a long-term resident yep. expat resident in japan but it is not so in thailand right so i mean in your experience let's go a bit upper level now so and stuff like your daily work the topics that you mentioned that you covered at the financial times how do the 
two countries, I guess, um, compare to each other on a more global scale? I mean, if you consider their, you know, immediate neighbors, their prominent trading partner, I know that Japan, for example, is like hugely import reliant and Thailand probably a bit less so, but what, what other sort of factors come into play when you review their economics? Some of the topics you normally touch on in the course of your work, I mean. Right. So definitely very different economies um, in a number of ways. Um, I mean, at the most basic level, I think you can compare Japan to almost anywhere in Southeast Asia and the, the difference will be more or less as stark. I mean, you could replace Thailand with Vietnam or the Philippines and a lot of what I'm going to say, uh, which is that Thailand is still a developing country. Uh, the growth potential anyway is a lot higher, although in the unique case of Thailand out of Southeast Asia, the growth has been quite poor in the last 10 plus years, oh, really 15 years nearly. Um, it's been kind of underperforming the general region, but that still is a lot faster uh, growth rate than what you see in Japan. Um, the challenges are different. Thailand still faces significant infrastructural challenges, um, rule of law, corruption, all of these things are quite quite uh, and, uh, challenging. In, challenging. In anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, challenging. Um, across Southeast Asia, really, I mean, other than Singapore, um, to kind of cast, a, to, to perhaps overgeneralize slightly, but the challenges are similar. Um, now, to, to look a little more at Thailand specifically, as I mentioned, the growth, though, has been quite poor decade or even more. Um, as a foreign investor, this may or may not matter to you, depending on if you're coming from the perspective of looking at buying into the stock market or you're going to set up a business. I mean, all of these cases are, are quite idiosyncratic, but um, the country's been growing at about 3% for this is 2006, um, not much more than 3%, and, and lately it's been worse. And this is, this. Um, earlier I said that there's a lot of similarities, but this is quite different when you compare it to Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia, its closest peers, Vietnam. Uh, all of these countries are generally, are, are, of course, all of this goes out the window with what's going on in the world right now, but leaving aside <clears throat> the coronavirus spiral and, and to a lesser extent the, the trade war issues that have also shaken up a lot of the global economy. Leaving all of that aside, um, the other countries in the region have grown more like four, five, six percent over this period. Um, and Vietnam and Indonesia, Vietnam and Philippines are still uh, maintaining that amazingly, give or take. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, I, I jumped ahead to the Southeast Asia side, kind of assuming that listeners are somewhat familiar with, with you know, Japan's story. But that, of course, you know, to summarize, is virtually no growth for two decades in terms of the overall GDP, um, a, a totally stagnant economy from the very top-down macro perspective that GDP gives you. But this is, is not the whole story, of course. Um, the economy uh, population also is stalling and even, even falling, and this means that per capita income has grown a little bit. And, of course, if you, if you go and actually look at anything that's happening on the ground, uh, there continue to be advances in the quality of life and, and so forth. So your GDP doesn't always tell the whole story, but on the global scale, you know, Japan has been diminishing while parts of the world like China and Southeast Asia have been, been rising from purely macro perspective. 
So you definitely lump Thailand in with the rest of Southeast Asia. So maybe not explosive growth, but definitely growing as opposed to Japan, which is either stagnant or shrinking uh, just, just in gross, gross terms. Again, like you say, not on the ground. Yeah, yeah, from the very top down. I mean, Thailand is still in that camp, but it's the, it's the laggard of the bunch for a long time. Um, in the last, um, again, I can go back to 2006, or we can say maybe 2011, kind of post-financial crisis um, rebound. Almost all of the growth, the new growth in Thailand has come from tourism. Tourism industry there has exploded, um, as has Japan's, which is an interesting parallel. Um, Thailand has climbed up, and it's going to be better. And I don't know offhand the, the final tallies from 2019 either because they're usually they, they take some time to come out but Thailand has has jumped up to the number four or number five position in the world in terms of foreign tourism oh wow revenue which is which is incredible so this places it uh, behind only the US Spain and France give or take um, there's some juggling about Thailand actually passed France I think two years ago but then uh, it fell back again and this is this is just unprecedented or <laughs> foreign tourism revenue than Japan does uh, amazingly than even China uh, giant China uh, and anywhere in Asia uh, which <laughs> to me it, it sort of blows my mind honestly Thailand's a wonderful place uh, I would argue it has the best food in the region if that's what get people there but you know there are also nice beaches in Indonesia there are better beaches in Indonesia really uh, Malaysia Philippines um, Thailand's a great place, but it, it may be a bit oversold or overvalued in, in this way and in a lot of other ways at this point. But I've been accused of being kind of a Thailand barrel for a long time. Well, you've been living there for a <laughs> so while. I get I that. that <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know it a little bit too well. Um, yeah. It's easy to lose sight of all of the wonderful things some of the time. <laughs> and a lot of those are, are more about the day-to-day quality of life and uh, you know, things that are better discussed perhaps over over a beer, you know, more about my personal experience than about the, the macroeconomics. Yeah, no, I, I totally get place, that. So. And as somebody who's lived in, um, so I've lived like in Israel and Australia and now in Japan. And the longer you live somewhere, the less you get what people see in it, I guess. <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, if you, if you, uh, if you take a step back and just look at the country from the outside again, it, it sort of becomes obvious. Okay. So you, you've mentioned, um, You've mentioned investment there. So speaking of investment, um, which is, I guess, what most of our listeners are usually into, the property market, which is what we deal in regularly here, is um, quite different um, in Japan, again, compared to most of the other countries that you cover or or to Thailand, isn't it? I mean, we always say the obvious, um, you know, there's no limits on foreign ownership, which is an exception in the Asia-Pacific region and... Um, but there's, on the other hand, there's huge difficulties to penetrate the market and practice on the ground. And, and again, sort of like um, contradictions, I guess. So very regulated, uh, legal recourse entrenched um, business environment. But then again, there's no capital growth, which is, again, very different to other countries around the region. So anything else that strikes you as unique or different here as opposed to, um, let's take Thailand as a representative of Southeast Asia? Yes, definitely. Uh, a lot of differences. I guess, you know, what I'm most qualified to speak on is Thailand. So I can give you a, a quick summary of what the real estate investment situation is like there um, for the 
from the perspective of a small investor, um, yeah. you know, an individual investor, maybe I should say. Um, and then some of the differences across Southeast Asia and then versus Japan, which is a place that I am personally planning uh, to invest, even though it, it does have limitations, uh, as you just mentioned. So uh, in Thailand, first of all, there's really uh, no way to buy land, which also means that there's no way to buy a house, a freestanding house, other than through loopholes. You can technically lease the land and buy the physical house, and a lot of people do that. A lot of people own property through a spouse. Um, less advisable, but it kind of the old way was to own property uh, through a company, own land and a house through a company. Does that change, uh, that uh, by the way... Not- Does that change with residency, or is that just a matter of you not being an, a natural Thai? Very, very good question. And this goes back to what I touched on earlier, that Thailand is a great place, I think, for a lot of people to come and get their feet wet in Asia, uh, perhaps at a, at a younger age, or someplace that I would absolutely recommend if, you, if you're coming from overseas and your company wants to send you to Thailand for two years, you know, do it. You'll never regret that kind of a move. But when you're looking at the long term, This is a major issue because uh, long-term residency, uh, even permanent residency, doesn't get you any kind of additional property rights or really any kind of additional other rights at all, other than uh, if you do manage to get permanent residency, which is difficult, you won't need a visa anymore, but you will, for example, still need a work permit. Um, And the PR is very, very difficult to get, so most people are actually still on year-to-year visas. Um, To go back to my... um, complaining about Thailand mode. Um, Even if you're married to a Thai, even if you have Thai children, you're in almost all cases on a year-to-year visa where they're checking your bank balance and and you're kind of at the the mercy of the government every year uh, as to whether you can continue to stay. So, circling back to property, yeah, there's no benefit to setting up long-term in Thailand. And then additionally, um, it's it's nearly impossible as well unless you're very well healed. And if you're very very well healed, don't really have this problem. Um, it's very, very, very difficult to borrow in Thailand for property to get any kind of a mortgage, even as a long-term resident, you know, forgetting about um, if you're not a resident. So that, yeah, that answers that. And then on the property side, what you can buy um, is a condo. And the reason that that is most of the time, it depends on the specific property. There's some leasehold uh, rules in Thailand, but most of the time property is freehold. And If foreigners own up to 49 or 49.99% of a building, that means that technically there's not foreign ownership over the underlying land. So it's you're able to own condos um, in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Almost always, they'll only be up to half of the building, as I mentioned. In some cases, there are loopholes or exceptions for this. Um, so if you want to invest in Thailand, you can do it through those means that I mentioned. Most people are doing it uh, by buying a condo, a property investment, that is. Um, now, is it, is it safe? Is it stable? It is safe. I think the rule of law, when it comes to this kind of thing, is pretty good in Thailand. It, obviously, we can't begin to compare to uh, Japan, to Singapore, to the United States, etc. But I wouldn't personally worry about you know, somehow losing your, your property or, or uh, really, str- really severe changes of ownership laws and, and so forth in Thailand. Um, in that sense, I think it's safe. But Uh, the market is not attractive, which is really probably uh, buried the lead here, uh, in my view. And this may be changing with Corona. And, of course, uh, 
it varies. You know, there will be pockets somewhere on some stretch of beach in Thailand or because somebody is a distressed seller or because X, Y, and Z. Somewhere in the country, of course, you can get an excellent deal on a property investment. But writ large, I think the growth has already been had. I remember when I first got to Bangkok in 2006, 2007, I was walking around and seeing all these ads for condos and really prime areas of the, the city. There were condos in the the uh, priced it around 100,000 baht per square meter. So that's like, at the time, the exchange rate at the time, that's under $3,000 per square meter. And now it's more than doubled. Um, so had I thought at that time, if I'd had the cash to do so, it would have been a good move. But I think no longer. Um, it's kind of overpriced. Per square meter, they're some of the highest prices in Asia um, outside, of, uh, the, outside of Hong Kong or Singapore. Um, Southeast Asia, I should say. It's funny that you um, you actually compare it to um, Singapore and Hong Kong, um, but they're actually not. They're similar in the sense that there's no, there's very very little freehold land. I, I'd probably say there actually is no freehold uh, land at all. I mean, Singapore's got their MDB uh, flats that I think include a land portion, but that's again that's only available to native Singaporeans, right? Yes, and I think PRs, but yeah, you can't just uh, you can't swoop in and buy one. That's right. Right. So Japan is. Um, I mean, we used to have Australia and New Zealand too, but they've sort of uh, put a hold on that as well for foreigners now. So I guess Japan's the only one, isn't it? Um, well, some of the other parts of Southeast Asia, and I don't know the exact rules as well as I do uh, for Thailand. But if we just step back from the the specific issue of the regulations and, and zoom out to the whole investment uh, proposition, basically. Regulations, price, growth potential. I, I think that the the investor who is willing to take on this kind of risk would be better off looking. And you need to do a lot of research. I'm not recommending to run out and buy something, but I think you'd be a lot better off looking at the Philippines and Vietnam even at Cambodia, if you um, if you're willing to go into that kind of a market, um, because the, uh, the longer term growth is there in these places for I think mean, for appreciation as well as more economic growth potential. Right. Um, Thailand Thailand is a good place to buy property if yeah if you can if you can get an unusual deal if you want to live in the country obviously that's another story but I, I recommend against it as a as an overall kind of overgeneralized. Uh, and from the perspective of, of what you do and uh, of Japan, I think my personal case is kind of interesting that I have all these connections in Thailand. Um, I have my, unfortunately, at this point, because the bot has been tanking the last couple of weeks, but I have most of my meager savings in Thailand. It would be very easy for me to invest in property in Thailand, as easy as it would be for any foreigner anyway. Um, but I'm interested in Japan, actually, when I'm ready to to take this kind of a step. Uh, the reason being for me, it's much safer. Um, and you can, of course, Ziv can give you much better details on this than I can, but um, while the, the likely nation is not there in, in almost any part of Japan, the, the yield is very high. And depending on what kind of portfolio you're trying to set up for yourself, this, this may be a lot more attractive. Um, for me personally, I think perhaps for a lot of um, high school 38 by 19, 1981 by some measures. So I think for a lot of people who have come up in, uh, you know, 
post boom economy and, and are trying to just get their feet wet with investments in their thirties and forties. It's, it's pretty intimidating and risky to tie up all, all or most of your investable capital in something like illiquid property in, in a, in a market like Thailand, yeah. even if maybe in the 20 year time horizon growth perspective might be, I don't think it is good for, for Thai property, not particularly good anyway, but even if it is good, whereas in Japan, you're going to have a property that's constantly you know, spitting out yield. And while the overall perhaps long-term return may be lower, there's a lot more liquidity there, both from the, you know, the, the rental payments you'd be getting if, if indeed you're, you're doing a rental investment. Um, and then also the resale liquidity. So, I'm not saying you can sell at a moment's notice, and again, it is a better person to ask, but it would certainly be more liquid then. So the cash flow, the cash flow as well, you feel is better here? Yes. Um, the yields, um, and again, I, I don't follow this closely in Thailand or anywhere else in Southeast Asia too closely, but you want to see, okay, so properties that, that Ziv can tell you about will be yielding 7 8%, 9%, right, in Japan, uh, rental yield. You will not see that in Bangkok. Um, I don't think you'll see that in any of uh, the ASEAN Southeast Asia capital cities unless you've secured a particularly good deal. Um, the reason is that you'll be compensated for that theoretically by future appreciation or that that's at least what the market is. If and when, signaling. yeah. But the yields, of, yeah, exactly. If and when. Um, or if you do manage to get, let's say, the same 7%, in a place like Phuket, you know, doing a vacation rental, maybe you can find the same yield, but it isn't as stable a, a market. So you're, you know, you're again taking a trade-off. You might have the same yield at the time that you set up the investment that you look at the market, but will that same yield be there, you know, if Thai tourism takes a major hit? Yeah. Well, I guess to be fair, we wouldn't see that in, um, you know, I wouldn't compare Bangkok to anywhere maybe, but Tokyo um, in Japan, we wouldn't see that here as well. But um, stability-wise, I think, yeah, you're definitely not dependent on uh, holiday rentals. So your 789 is pretty stable in most markets here. Okay, so I, I guess we were talking about growth and um, where things might go or not go in the future. Um, what sort of trends do you see? I mean... Anything current that's going into near future or, I guess, not just property markets, but generally, say, a wider business economy level? I mean, obviously, right now, we've got the coronavirus that's sort of um, yes. monkey-wrenching everything. But, I mean, put that aside for a moment, hoping it'll be sorted one way or the other. Um, what sort of major forces or trends are you seeing at play in the region these days? And don't say China again. I mean, give me something else. sequel here where we actually do talk about <laughs> it's, changing every, it's changing everything but if we do leave that aside um I'll, I'll mention china only because that's one of the drivers of what's happening yeah um if we erase the coronavirus then we're back to a still kind of uh unstable and unpredictable global economy in which there's this u.s china trade war and global trade is kind of head, heading south and a lot of this has spillover to Southeast Asia. Um, you'll see headlines and, uh, where that focus on uh, some of the positives, and that is true. A lot of supply chain, manufacturing-based stuff is being pushed. Well, let's let's turn that around. Start the sentence over. The acceler uh, supply chains that were already 
relocating out of China or interest companies that were interested in relocating out of China, diversifying away from China. That's all been accelerated by by the trade war. So there are beneficiaries in Southeast Asia in certain industries. You'll see the Vietnam, Malaysia, to a lesser extent, Thailand, electronics, manufacturing industries benefiting from this. Um, autos in Thailand, which are, by the way, the, the largest single kind of single item sector uh, along with tourism. Oh, really? In, in the Thai economy. Yep. Thailand is... Uh, it has been called the Detroit of Southeast Asia, which might be kind of outdated for a number of reasons, not least that Detroit isn't what Detroit once was. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Thailand is maybe better compared. It's, it, it's sort of, and I don't mean this in any kind of pejorative sense, but it's, it's in large part uh, Japan's Mexico for our more U.S.-centric listeners. Um, Thailand produces more Toyotas and Mitsubishis than almost anywhere else in the world. I did not know that. Um, yep, indeed. Yep, Thailand is major. I mean, it doesn't compare to China just because the scale is so different, but it's a major auto producer and exporter. Um, Two million plus units per year, uh, about 40 or 50 percent of which, give or take, very broadly, depends on how the Thai economy is doing staying in the country. So Thailand exports over a million personal vehicles, um, so not motorcycles, but four-wheel, normal four-wheel passenger vehicles, yep. Um, A little bit of sidetrack there. So we're getting to um, China driving. So China's, the China-U.S. situation and and the overall China kind of slowdown has been driving a lot of change in Southeast Asia. Um, And a place to watch, I would say, is Vietnam. Okay. A place to watch as an individual investor if you have that kind of risk tolerance and ability to perhaps make a property investment or to get involved in a, a rather illiquid stock market. Yep. Um, but just in terms of the interesting trend, Vietnam, also Philippines, that's the other growth leader in Southeast Asia these days. Um, I think both of these countries in the next five, ten years will have caught up quite a lot to the rest of the region. Okay. And um, I guess, I mean, this is basically exactly the kind of stuff that we like to hear about here. So, so you're saying watch um, maybe China on a slowdown and then Vietnam, Philippines sort of exploding upwards. We've definitely seen that in the property markets as well. Um, well, I guess Japan is a bit slow in adopting um, some of these wider global trends, but it does tend to get there in the end, even though it does take them a bit longer. Um, do you see anything um, in the headwinds for Japan? Any any sources of, or trends that might be positively affecting the economy around here? Uh, yeah, I mean, positive. That's a, a good question. Easier to point to the negatives. Um, and to make one final Japan Thailand comparison, um, Thailand has the most aging, or maybe Singapore does, but Singapore is in a league of its own economically. Um, in, in the major, large Southeast Asian countries, um, Thailand has the most similar aging problem to that of Japan. And it's not as severe, but it's another future headwind for the Thai economy. Um, and then so back in Japan, I mean, that's that's definitely, I think, a long-term driver that's very, very talked about, but not always widely understood in terms of its implications for the small investor um in the five i mean i don't mean the one or two or three year time frame but in the in the 10 20 year time frame i i would guess that a lot of these smaller property markets will change quite a lot as as a result of that um again you're the expert there but i think on the flip side going back to watching china and and the these drives will come together i promise 
uh, we need to watch the extent to which Chinese are making investments in Japan. I mean, whatever it catches on in China will just have a massive impact on any country that it's that its money is going to because this, the size is just so tremendous. So if Chinese property buyers get more interested in Japan, that, that could have a, a huge impact on the market. And then any regulations that either make that easier or make that harder will be things that you'll, you'll want to watch as a potential uh, Japan property investor, I think, you know, just to kind of shoot from the hip here. Yeah. Well, I guess... Um... I mean, Chinese have been pretty active here generally, although a lot of them have been buying um, agricultural, sort of water-rich land for some reason. I mean, for obvious reasons, but um, they're definitely a lot losing interest. But they have had some um, some limits placed on them as far as outgoing capital is concerned, although the richer ones do seem to find ways around it. Okay, well, I guess, look, we won't keep you any longer, Dan. I know you're busy, and um, we're definitely better for the conversation, so thank you for your time. Um Maybe as a parting gift to our listeners, like uh, some, I don't know, a tip or a tidbit, if there's anybody out there who's still not invested in any market, let's say, here in the Asia-Pacific region, anyone who's considering, um, say, an Australian, a U.S. or North American citizen, European, somebody who's considering to pull the trigger for the very first time. Um, you've mentioned Vietnam, you've mentioned the Philippines. Anything else that's attractive or even just interesting potential that you see for these uh, foreign investors in the coming year or two, I mean, so not not too long term. Any country specifically, yeah. market sector? Well, I think that the the easiest and most important tip, and it, it might be unfortunately not good for uh, the, the short term revenue of uh, property firms, but basically, don't do it. <laughs> Stay out of it um, while we watch what happens with the coronavirus. No, that's a very uh, valid then, tip, actually. Yeah. Um, but then be ready to jump in at the same time. So um, your firms like Zivs may see, see a little bit of a slow. Then I think that they'll see a, a rush in when we know kind of where the bottom is. Um, and unlike stock markets, we're not going to see property plummet in markets like Japan or even Thailand. But uh, I think that the coronavirus is certainly making for uh, the potential of, of better deals and, uh, and the, uh, kind of the right time to enter into these markets, also because the currencies are mostly, you know, taking a hit. Um, Thailand, as I mentioned earlier, my, my meager savings have been suffering, and I, at least on a USD basis, um, the bot has dropped eight percent so far just this year. That's just two and a half months. Mm. So, you know, from the a dollar perspective, um, euro not too far off. Uh, unfortunately, if you have pounds, there yen. Those are other stories, but um, the the yen has bounced back. Um, but anyway, so, you know, a condo, if you were going to buy a dollar basis, and I think that this will uh, accelerate further in the next couple of months as uh, coronavirus worsens. So I would say uh, sit out, but have the funds ready, um, chambered, uh, ready to, to fire when you see the right deal. No, that's that's uh, that's an excellent tip, actually. We've got... Um more than one, I'd say probably a good few clients who are actually doing exactly that. So they're sitting on the sidelines, got the finger on the trigger and just waiting. Um, actually, what I've been hearing from them is that they're waiting for the Olympics to be uh, postponed or canceled. And the expectation is that Tokyo property prices that have sort of been buoyed by that um, for a while now to drop as a result, whether it's going to happen or not, if it's going to be temporary or long term, I have no idea. But there's definitely some changes um 
happening in that global landscape. So yeah, watching and waiting is definitely the way to go, at least as far as Tokyo and Osaka are concerned. All right. Brilliant. Thanks again for uh, joining us today, Dan. It's been a pleasure having you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Okay, folks. So there you have it. The macro view straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And we hope this interview brought you some value. Do share this podcast with your networks if it did. And of course, we would really appreciate it, as we always do. If you could leave us a rating or even better, a review, a couple of words on the iTunes store, Spotify, let us know what you think. And most importantly, our second webinar, as we mentioned, is coming up soon. So the link again is going to be in this episode show notes again. Take a minute, fill it in the uh, registration form, the survey, especially if you want to pre-submit your questions uh, for the Q&A session. It does get pretty busy on the day, as anyone who's joined us the first time knows. And just jump in there, register, let us know what you want to talk about so we can actually save the time to do that. And that's it. So thank you again for today. Thanks for tuning in. We hope to have you with us all next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI, stay safe, stay virus-free, wash your hands. And until we meet again, you're good. Thank you.